And I did all sorts of childish things. I used to get a beer barrel in the garage. I used to water the beer down. And I used to half empty gin bottles and um, fill them with water. He must have known it was me. It, it wasn't talked about in the family and it was, I had a brother and we didn't even really talk about it to each other really. It was just really, really difficult. Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober Podcast, episode 138. My name is Janet Gorond. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, we help people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and actually thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last seven years, we've helped hundreds of people to do just that. November is our birthday month, so we're offering a birthday discount of 20% off our annual membership. Just go to tribesober.com, hit join our tribe and enter the code birthday 2022 and if you're worried about the approach of the festive season then check out our annual fundraiser which is open now just go to the homepage of our website tribesober.com and hit annual fundraiser you can get 30 days of support from a date of your choice so you can do a dry december or a dry january your call so let's get to this week's podcast guest. This week I'm interviewing another Janet, Tribe Sober member Janet D. She joined us in August 2021. She used all the tools, stayed connected on all the platforms and got through those first difficult months. As you will hear, she's now thriving in her sobriety and tells us she's planning to be a tribe member for life. We love it when our tribe members decide to pay it forward and help other people to do what they've done. It certainly affirms our decision to be sober when we see how some of the newbies are struggling. And of course, we continue to get inspired by the hobbies and interests we see our other sober members pursuing. So I began by asking Janet to introduce herself. Okay, thank you very much um, for having me, Janet. It's, uh, it's an honour indeed. I was born in 1954 and brought up in Yorkshire in uh, the UK, in England, and I have lived for the last 28 years in Surrey. So I was in the north of England and now I'm in the south of England. I had quite a challenging childhood because I had a father who drank and mother who used prescription drugs. So that was a challenging childhood in many ways. I lived in London from the age of 18. I trained as a physiotherapist, worked as a physiotherapist. I had a master's in uh, human physiology. 
I worked until I was in my early 40s. And rather to my surprise, just before I was 40, I had a little boy and then I had a little girl, having thought I couldn't have children. So that rather changed my life. Along the way, I had got married very briefly between the ages of 22 and 25 and then remarried at 29. So there were lots of things that went on with that. Got divorced at when I was 52. But I have got two wonderful children who both have marvellous partners. My son got married in March. Uh, they live close by now, which is really lucky. They haven't always lived close by, but they do now. What a lovely kind of late blessing having those two children when oh, you weren't amazing. expecting them. Yeah. I mean, I still can't quite believe it. They're in, you know, late 20s, early 30s yeah. now. But I still look at them and think, where did you come from? Yeah, and you've got them around the corner. I mean, what could be mm, better? Lovely. So um, let's talk about the, the drinking, shall we, Janet? Uh, were you like me? Did you start drinking as a teenager? I have lived in a drinking culture all my life. And you know the British. We're an alcoholic society, as equal as anywhere, really. My earliest memories as a child were my father going from being the most delightful man to being not a very delightful man. And it was something we tiptoed around as children. And it was very difficult. So he, he would have some days of not drinking but days of drinking, but we didn't call it drinking. I was, probably I was about four when I started to know about it, but probably I was about eight by the time I made the personal, it it was alcohol, it was this, what he was drinking. And I did all sorts of childish things. I used to, he had a beer barrel in the garage. I used to water the beer down and I used to half empty gin bottles and um, fill them with water. He must have known it was me. It it wasn't talked about in the family and it was, I had a brother and we didn't even really talk about it to each other really. It was just really, really difficult. I have huge sympathy and and worry about children being brought up in families. So we were a very middle, comfortable family. He ran his own business, otherwise he wouldn't have managed. He often drove when he was drinking, but of course in those days there weren't the laws that we have now. Anyway, by the time, you'd think I would never have gone near alcohol, but by the time I was 15, my brother could drive. We had a good group of friends, and the pub, as everyone knows, is a great thing in England. Uh, We were in the countryside in England. My brother used to give me a lift to the pub, and all our friends were there, and we we drank, which is quite shocking, really. And I can even remember the local policeman coming in at closing time for a drink. You hope these days the publican would be worrying about his license now. But I didn't drink a lot. I didn't particularly like alcohol. That continued, really, that I I drank. Occasionally, I drank too much by accident. But alcohol wasn't... I was a moderate drinker. Can you remember what you did used to drink, Janet? I remember at that age, I I was on my whiskey and Cokes. What did you used to drink? Yeah, well, I I went to Mallorca when I was 15, and it was the first with a friend. I mean, what my parents were like, they were very liberal, and it suited them, really. Um, But I went to Mallorca on our own when we were 15. Some people bought us rum and Coke, 
And it was first time that I didn't even know what being drunk felt like. And I can remember the room spinning. I mean, we were so vulnerable. It was ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. But um, so I did that, you know, at parties occasionally. I drink too much. I don't ever remember sort of deciding to have a drink on my own. I just wouldn't enter my head. It sort of gave me a bit of a headache, actually. So it didn't make me want to drink a lot. If I drank too much, I felt terrible. And why would I sort of thing? If only I'd stayed like that for the rest of my life. And to be honest, I don't remember drinking that much all through my working life. I had I was a university lecturer for a while uh, in my sort of last 10 years of working. I had a big job and I don't remember coming home and, and drinking. I'd have a cup of tea. It okay. was when we'd moved to Surrey. My then husband was not around very much at all. And I had small children. I'd given up my big career, really. I became a yummy mummy, I guess, and started to drink. It was the mummy juice. It was the mummy juice. And, I mean, we're talking, you know, we are talking nearly 30 years ago. So 25 years ago, anyway. My my son is 40 now, and I remember when he was little going to parties and, you know, the kids were on their sugar high and the mommies were on the, the wine. You know, the mommy juice has been around a long time. <laughs> yeah, and, and I mean, I'm not blaming my then husband, but he definitely was someone that would come in from work quite late and have a glass of wine. But by the time I was, the time I was in my late 40s, but early 50s, I would be, I never felt I was drunk, but I would definitely, um, when they were little round about bath time, I'd have a mm-hmm. glass of wine. Then I'd have another glass of wine I was cooking dinner. I might sneak in another <laughs> one before he came home. And then making out that I hadn't really had a drink when he came home, I'd have another drink. It's and at weekends, we classic, drank at lunchtime <laughs> as well as, well as the evening. I... I just didn't think about it. I mean, the denial is just ridiculous, really. Confirmational bias. I can remember saying, you know, the governments, they were just arbitrary, the government, when they made the, you know, the 21 units, it was just an arbitrary number. There's no science behind it. You know, (laughs) talk about, um, you know, confirmational bias. So life went on its way and that became my regular pattern so I very rarely got drunk I very rarely drank to blackout if I did it would be by accident because I was at a party or something and if you asked me how much I drunk I'd have said oh half a half a bottle uh, you know a couple of large glasses of wine but actually Janet I drank more than that yeah, they were large glasses. probably a bottle a night which seems to be our average <laughs> Ah, but then I I discovered the marvelous thing called a box of wine, because a who invented those? (laughs) At the time, we had these open recycling boxes, so you could walk up the road on recycling day and see what the neighbours had been drinking. Well, mine would have been overflowing boxes, of course. You just stuck in the bin, and and they, they went in the other recycling. And of course, no one could tell really. Um, if you'd replaced the box or how much of the box you've drunk. But I was definitely drinking too much and I drank every night. And my ex-husband drank every night. Again, not he hadn't had the same amount of time as I'd had in the evening to drink. 
so it had crept up and yeah. so I was a late onset drinker if I could yeah. have stayed how I was up to 40 it, it would yeah. have been fine you're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober and the thing with those boxes, Janet, was that we, we didn't even know ourselves how much we were drinking, no. did we? Because at least with the bottle, no. you see it going down. But with... And always I'd leave a little bit at the bottom of the bottle because psychologically yes. I haven't drank a bottle. But, but no, absolutely. Over a weekend, I dread to think how much just went. And that's without us socialising. That's just yeah. home life. So we um, got divorced when I was about 52. And I did drink a little bit less for a while. Did you think, okay, I'm on my own now, so I'd better keep an eye on this thing? Or did it just happen by accident? Well, I definitely stopped any drinking at lunchtime. So at the weekend, I wouldn't drink at lunchtime. So there wasn't the sort of feeling of being drinking all day. I mean, we had relatively young children to sort out. And I would never drink and drive. So, you know, there would be some sort of breaks on the whole thing. But it it was very easy to drink too much. And then I think, you know, I just settled into life on my own. I had the kids. They were only about 12 and 14. So I had them on my own. um, And I had to make sure I was caring for them. But I still managed to get into this pattern of drinking every day. Well, we were in the pandemic. And of course, that was very easy to be drinking at the pandemic. I had some uh, orthopedic surgery, ankle surgery. So uh, I made a real effort to not drink for six weeks afterwards. And that was like white knuckle. That that was hard. So I knew that I could stop drinking, but it was white knuckling. There was no... I mean, I had read Alan Carr's book years earlier. So I'd obviously had a thought of stopping. And I liked that book. I think it's the foundation of a lot of the recovery movement, really. Yeah. As I say, complete denial about any problems. Last year, at the beginning of 21, I decided that I would make an effort and was going to moderate. Put all the rules in place, moderate and everything. What were your rules? Tell me your rules. Oh, they'd be, they'd change a lot. They'd be only drinking two nights in the week. And uh, so, you'd, you know, you were never that far from a drink. So, you know, <laughs> you wouldn't drink on a Monday. You wouldn't drink on a Wednesday, that sort of thing. Um, and I did have a go at stopping again completely and um, thinking I needed to just reset and get rid of all the toxins. But that's white knuckling. So this is the beginning, 21. And the other thing that was going on with me is since the day my first child was born, which was 31 years ago, I had been the most appalling sleeper. The GPs in, well, my GP was very happy to put diazepam, which is a benzodiazepine, commonly known as benzos, on repeat prescription for me from 1994-ish to the beginning of last year I had taken at least um, um, diazepam and or something like zoplopone one of the Z drugs but they're all the same family of benzos yeah. I've taken one of those a night so wow. along with the wine that's like a double whammy to knock you out isn't it's it? it so I take well I would I would take them at midnight and then I'd probably take one at four o'clock the Z drugs are shorter lasting so you know I had it all how I did it and I I functioned perfectly well, you know, in my head. Anyway, I started thinking I, you know, I was 
I don't know, I something derailed me in the middle of this trying to stop drinking at the beginning of, of 21, and I was soon back to where I started. Anyway, I decided in August last year that I was going to have a real go, but being me, I had to decide to do everything. So no alcohol and no no benzos. Well, what could possibly go wrong? Again, I wasn't really thinking I was going to stop permanently. So anyway, I stopped in the middle of August last year. I read uh, Annie Grace's The Naked Mind, and I started doing her uh, 30-day 30 30 day experiments, which is quite similar to the ones you do now. I didn't know about you. I didn't know about any of the sort of recovery movement stuff. Mm. I just happened to come across in a newspaper article, Annie Grace. Anyway, after about two weeks, I hadn't really slept. So this clearly wasn't going well. So never mind not drinking. It was, I just wasn't functioning. So I, the sensible bit of me said I just had to do one at a time. So I went back to using benzos again at night concentrated on not drinking and it was really hard but the 30-day experiment was what really kept me going and I'm sure you're you know you're 66 sober uh, it's fantastic it's what people need I finished the 30 days thinking oh what am I going to do now and a bit of me said you're going to do the 30 days again and I literally did it again because as you say you need yeah. more than 30 days Someone said to me, uh, a colleague said to me that they'd stopped drinking. And I sort of hadn't told anyone really. I just said, oh, no, I'm not drinking at the moment. I'm trying to improve my sleep. And they told me about Claire Cooley, who you've had on your podcast, I know. And she came to a Zoom cafe meeting, didn't she? Um, I listened to her TED Talk, which is so inspiring. And I read her, her book. And I, you know, she's got various things online as well her novels are fantastic as well but I could really relate to her although she's a lot younger than me and then I came across you and that was really nice because the naked mind their their Facebook and everything they are huge they are huge I mean if you want a response to your Facebook comments put something on there and you'll get in five minutes you've got you know, 50 people responding to you. But I, I didn't really relate to it. And I hadn't really found a group. By then, I'd realized how huge the recovery movement was. And I was reading the literature. I was learning about the brain and how alcohol affects it. I was journaling. I was doing everything that everyone says to do. So I was doing the work. I was doing the work. And I, I came across you. And you know, I related much more. It was a lot of the, and I'm not knocking it, but a lot of the recovery groups, the people who drank a lot very, very young and have already given up by the time they were 30. Well, I haven't stopped it. <laughs> so, yes. you know, I didn't particularly relate to them. So I was sort of, it was hard. I mean, there's no point pretending it's not hard. Um, I'm a very imaginative visual person. So, I had the Wicked Wine Witch and Moderation Mary. And I've got a garage with a sort of inspection pit under it. And in my mind, I kept the Wicked Wine Witch and Moderation Mary in there. Locked and I had, I had to fight. And I used to say, I can hear you screaming. There's no point screaming. You're not coming out. But I had to really work at it. The other thing I'd done visually as well, 
I'd sort of done some calculations on the back of an envelope, and I think I think they're probably very conservative estimates, but I reckon that I had drunk at least 6,000 bottles of wine. I reckon I'd also taken about 10,000 benzos. Imagine if you saw them all in a... In a room. No, well, in my head, in my head, I would, I would look out of a window uh, as a space and try and think, what would they look like? What would the pile of the these little white tablets do? I mean, I just sounds horrendous, doesn't it? And I said, so now when people say, I say I don't drink, and they say why, I said I've drunk my quota. Yeah. And if they ask again, I say, well, probably six thousand bottles. And people just look at me as if I must have been in the gutter, you know, as a, a down and out. Uh, anyway, that and it, I it gets them off your case, <laughs> whatever it, it does. It, it, it shocks people as well. You said it was hard. I'm just interested in how long was it hard for? Would you say six months or a year, or is it still hard? No, it's not hard at all now. And how long is, is it now? Remind me. It's just over a year. Right. So I started it last August. So I've just been over a year. No, it's Fantastic. not hard in the slightest. And I'm Fantastic. still terribly excited about it. So if anyone wants to talk to me about it, I'll <laughs> talk to them about it. So no, I, and I have alcohol in the house. I um, Because when I told my kids, I was almost expecting them to say, oh, mum, we're glad you've reached that decision. They were both horrified. They're like, Why? So that was really interesting. By by the time last year came, I also was quite frightened with what I was doing to my body. Yeah. And for anyone who is a knows pharmacology and, and neurophysiology and pharmacology, will know that the benzos, um, the benzodiazepines, work in the same pathways and the same receptors in the brain. So if you if if you think about it. I was pleased with myself. I didn't obviously drink all day. I wouldn't normally start have a glass of wine until about six o'clock in the evening. It was one of the rules. And I, I didn't, I usually had sort of three glasses between then and nine. I didn't drink much after that. So it was a very small window. But I then, somewhere around about when I couldn't get to sleep, midnight, one o'clock, would take um, some diazepam and then I'd fall asleep. Um, around about three o'clock, I'd probably take a, a Zopliclone or something, which is also a similar drug. So really, I was topping up overnight. People don't talk about alcohol and sleep, but for me, it's it, they had to go together. So after I, I'd started and sort of probably done these two months, I then wanted to tackle as well right. the benzos. And that was really tough. There are communities and all sorts of courses for helping you sleep. I, I just did not get on with them. The, the main way in the UK of, of improving people's sleep is, is what's called CBTI, they call it. But it's really using a sleep window. So you're meant to stay awake till, you know, two o'clock in the morning. So you'll fall asleep, you'll stay asleep for four hours and then you get up. So you're never allowed to lie in bed. You have to wait until you just can't not fall asleep. Well, in the middle of winter in the UK, sitting on a sofa, not drinking and not being able to go to bed was a nightmare. So I didn't get on well with that at all. But I eventually did find a course I did like. 
But the online community just didn't do it for me because it made me more anxious. Hearing other people not sleeping, it's not like hearing other people not drinking, but hearing about other people not sleeping is just induced anxiety. So I really did it on my own. And I did get there um, on my own, but that took another two months. So there was a lot going on. So it was really Christmas by the time I was starting to sleep a bit better and not drinking. And it was still, it wasn't hard by then, but it was still, oh, you know, the marketing is so clever, isn't it? You know, the... A beautiful bottle of champagne, <laughs> a beautiful, a beautiful bottle of champagne at Christmas, you know, and everybody else was drinking champagne. But by then, I'd really investigated a lot of the alcohol-free drinks. I was okay, um, but a bit wistful, probably. Yes, um, yes, that is a stage even, we go through. Yeah, it's, and we have to grieve for it, don't we? <laughs> we do. And even last week, actually, I had people coming for dinner. And I put a bottle of rosé from the supermarket in my trolley. And it just looks so beautiful. I mean, <laughs> they spend a fortune oh. on making their bottles look beautiful. I mean, it is, we, we have no idea how we're marketed at. It makes me so cross. Yes. And as you all know, in the UK, we've got this drink aware. The Portman Group are the people who are meant to, um, you know, help the general public with the public health issues over alcohol well they're funded by the alcohol industry exactly and that's why they always say they never say quit drinking they say drink responsibly or moderate don't they that they say don't drink more than 14 units because they know that people like us can't moderate but they don't want us to give up altogether yeah, I was horrified when I discovered that um, Drink Aware was uh, funded by the alcohol industry. Oh, and I mean, it, it it produces so much tax for the government. There's no political will, along with all the other things going on. No political will at all. No. And, you know, if they if it had never been invented and someone invented alcohol now, there is no way it would be a legal drug. I mean, it causes much more... Um, misery, um, bad health, and all sorts of other things than than all the other drugs put together ten times over, and Absolutely. yet it's a legal drug that's highly yeah. marketed. It yeah. will eventually have its cigarette moment. Yeah, it's, yeah. And it, talking uh, of the the figures, you know that three million people die a year globally um, from alcohol related causes. And think about how in the pandemic, you know, maybe one of the pandemic years was about that. And the whole world closed down and it was like a major catastrophe. But all these people die every single year from alcohol and nothing happens. We just, the machine just cranks up more and more. Oh, I mean, they it's just, I mean, once you're aware of the advertising, it is absolutely extraordinary that you can't um, see a sunset without a glass in your yeah. hand. Every celebration from the birth of a child to the funeral there's a glass in the hand and the subliminal uh, marketing is just it's so clever they employ the best people 
for people that want to stop drinking, I think the more that we become aware of how we're being manipulated, the, the easier it gets. You know, I have fun these days when I watch a movie. I think, OK, it's been five minutes. Haven't seen a glass of wine yet. Wonder how much longer it'll be. And, you know, once we realise that, and like you, you know, I get angry about the whole thing about how we, we've been played, you know. I mean, people like us from, from the age of 18, really, until we were, were much older, we were just in this machine and uh, being being. And it, it, it staggers me because my younger years were so affected by my parents' miserable relationship, my father with alcohol, my mother addicted to prescription drugs, to Valium, which was dished out in those days. I was listening to Anthony, I wrote his name down, Anthony Edridge Rogers. Sadly, my mother didn't have a good outcome because she took her own life with a mixture of alcohol and Valium uh, when I was 25, so she was about 52. His um, mother, fortunately, was admitted to a psychiatric hospital that realised she was addicted and then had a fantastic life. I know, she was 40 years in recovery in the end, wasn't she? Yeah, and unlike him, he was sort of colluding with his mother, taking drugs. It was not mentioned in our household, the Mm. whole thing. And taking Valium in large doses has a very similar effect to drinking alcohol because it's on the same receptors. So you get slurred speech and all Mm. those signs. So I knew that she had a problem. you know, this ongoing bad relationship with my father was uh, just she couldn't cope with it. So it, it was awful. Um, but you'd think I would have. You but know, you've been you've done so well because you have two kind of counts against you, really, because the fact, you know, that there was addiction in your family, first of all, means you're, that you're predisposed to it. And then, you know, the fact that you started, like me, drinking as a teenager, apparently that, that's another, mm-hmm. you know, count that also predisposes you. So, you know, you have the two things going. So it's hardly surprising. But what is, you know, maybe a little bit surprising is you managed to get out of it after decades, really. It did, so. take, me, it did take me to the age of 67. Though, well, you know, <laughs> whatever. Better late Some, than never. Exactly. Well, that's that's what I say as well. But, you know, we have you and me, you know, we've both at the age that we did this, we, we've saved our own lives, really, because if we'd have carried on for another decade with that kind of behaviour, it, it wouldn't have ended in a good place, I don't think. And, I, you know, I just say to people, just just do it, because it is going to be hard. But if you persevere and get the support... You know, your your wonderful workshops and all sorts of things you offer now. And everyone can find, I think, um, something online that will support them. I don't personally know people who've used AA. Um, I did have a look around where I live, just out of interest. And there's a lot of meetings. I was never going to be going to AA. But I just don't think people know about the, um, the recovery movement online and all sorts all ages it's changed so much you know I mean I gave up seven years ago and I did go to AA because there was nothing else you know certainly here in South Africa that's why I did something myself but uh, there was nothing else but just the last 10 years you know it's it's completely changed you know we've got a modern recovery movement 
and we've got you know our our lady um susan christina with her magazine you know sober magazine so she she's rebranding sobriety making it glamorous oh she's fantastic i love her i mean and i'd worked sort of on the edges of health and psychology all my life really but in my head there was either rehab for people who were serious drinkers they might get it on the NHS but you know they really had to be in mental health breakdown to get that private rehab or AA and actually the figures for remaining sober with those I'm not knocking any of them but they're not great but I think going back to Alan Carr who has he starts off with this is a toxin why on earth are you you know using this horrible drug so when I was looking at my bottle in the supermarket trolley last week and thinking wow that just looks glamorous in my head I poured it into a rather dull brown carton which had a manky looking liver on the outside you know, know. how about cr- uh, skull and crossbones <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it suddenly didn't look very glamorous so no. it was the, the bottle it wasn't the pink lovely substance yeah. and yeah. It, as I say it is just sold so well so it is hard but it's so worth it and I know you say that a million times over but I think there's no point pretending it isn't you have to do the work these days I've pretty much concluded after all the people that I've worked with that six months you know six months of hard work and then you know everything changes you just start to feel like a different person and then it's about working on other stuff you know about reconfiguring your life and getting new activities new friends maybe new hobbies and uh, but it's it's such an exciting journey if you can just get through those those really difficult early months And I sort of, you have to come to terms with whether you are someone that's going to be able to moderate. Because I think a lot of people set off thinking, I just want to drink like normal people. You know, it wouldn't cross our our radar to be having a conversation or looking at anything about recovery if we could moderate. Because people that moderate, they moderate. They don't, you know, go online and start looking at sobriety groups. (laughs) And I just think if I started drinking again, I would be back. I promise oh, you it would take me a me week too. to be back to my me old. Um, but, you know, there's the thought of where you know what British winters are like. You know, it's dark from four o'clock in the afternoon by the beginning of December, not light until the eight o'clock. And for many a winter, you know, I would start that early evening with a really large sherry. <laughs> and that didn't even count. Okay. <laughs> That was the, the apero. <laughs> well, what about, Janet, you've got to get into hot chocolate. That's what I do these days when it's cold. Oh. I've, I've replaced my red wine habit with a hot chocolate habit. Yeah. Oh, and I mean, I'm a great tea drinker now. And I I'm a, I have a really good selection of alcohol-free drinks. I've really enjoyed yeah, um, good for you. exploring that. So, no, my, my wish to, to drink a, a known neurotoxin has gone. It has taken a while. I mean, alcohol rewires our brain and we've got to give it time to heal and reconfigure and and then we find our, our normal selves again, don't we? Every Saturday afternoon, we open up our Tribe Sober Zoom Cafe. It's a safe space where our members can connect, check in and just shoot the breeze about alcohol-free living. 
If you'd like to be a guest at the cafe one Saturday, just drop us an email at Janet at tribesober.com. That's Janet, J-A-N-E-T, at tribesober.com, and we'll send you an invitation. It's horrendous what alcohol does to us because because it's fat-soluble and water-soluble. It can get into every single cell of our yeah. body. Yeah, I, I, as I say, I have to balance being evangelical and... and yes, um, all right, well, we'll, uh, well just, uh, just a last bit of evangelicalness from you, if that's a word. Uh, top three benefits of sobriety, please, for you. Well, I have to say, one of mine is, is sleeping. Um, yes. And I do sleep well now. And I, it, it had to go with, clearly I had an addiction to more than just alcohol, it probably would have been much more sensible to have done one at a time and whatever. But anyway, I got there. But I do sleep now. And if I was honest, I think I would say I am a, a calmer person. I think I was always slightly on the edge of anxiety. Your lovely coach, Lynette, when I had a session with her, she said, you've got to learn to be comfortable with your uncomfortable feelings. Yeah. And that was one of the hardest, hardest things for me. I mean, if I'd had a tough day, I'd sort of think, oh, I can't wait for a glass of wine. Mm. Well, what are you doing? That's just not working through any problem, is it? So I would say that I'm better at being comfortable with uncomfortable feelings and that, that I feel a calmer person. And the other benefit is I've got so much more time. Yes, so, yes. And I, I can, I can watch a movie in the evening and remember what the movie's about and read a book. And it's yeah. just like, I feel like I used to, even if I was socialising or or at home, you know, once I'd had a glass of wine and had the second glass of wine and perhaps the third glass of wine, it took care of the evening. Yes, you know? absolutely. And absolutely. Uh, I've been on holiday with friends who drank this year, and it was fine. I wouldn't have wanted to do that too early on, though. I think you have no. to be really realistic. Yes. Yeah, make it as how, easy you as you can. Uh, and, you know, don't go on holiday with drinkers and don't have booze in the house for those first few months. Yeah, and we had, a, in March, we had a big, my son got married. And everyone said, aren't you going to even have a glass of champagne? Because champagne is so fixed in everyone's head. And I said, no, but I've got a really, I had a nice bottle of, um, uh, you know, fizz that was non-alcoholic, and I said, "No, I'm going to have that." And the staff at the venue were all geared up to know that that's what was in yeah. front of me. And soon, people forgot about it that I wasn't. They do as long as they've got enough to drink. Yeah, then, you know, they soon lose interest. But it's the attitude. In you. Yeah, the attitude yeah. of surely you'll have as if as if that you need a neurotoxin yeah, to as celebrate. Yeah, we're terribly <laughs> deprived, you know, because we're not yeah. drinking. But anyway, yeah. that's part of the fun, really. It's all so predictable, isn't it? And we can we can it always is. be anthropologists if we get bored. <laughs> Watch everyone else yeah, get absolutely. smashed. Absolutely, so, how noisy they come. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, Janet, if someone's listening to this and they're where the two Janets were some years ago and they think, oh, that's how on earth could I do this? How could I get started? What advice would you give them? I'd certainly say to them, they need to really think why they want to stop drinking. And they need to understand, I think, what alcohol does to the body. Because then you have a much, 
it sort of opens your eyes much more. As you always say, find your tribe, find yeah. some support. It may be that you could even find people who you know who want to stop drinking. I don't know yeah. how that works. I was really pleased when I found Tried Sober. It just was, oh, I related to you age-wise and obviously perhaps a little culturally as well. And that that would do, you know, and it was fantastic. But you sort of need to know it's there, don't you, to yeah. start with that. But I, I kept a journal. I've, I've nearly all my life kept a journal. Yeah. But it was just so important through this. I do periodically burn them. They're not for anyone else's oh, benefit. Right. So, um, <laughs> I was thinking um, maybe we, we're going to see the sober diaries from, from Janet. No, no. <laughs> like- Believe you me, you would not want to read most of what was in mine. So periodically I burn them and I don't want them to be a burden on my children, leaving this enormous pile of journals. But it clearly serves a huge purpose for me. And at at really bad times, if I haven't been able to locate my journal, it's a feeling of panic. It was that important to me. Because you you used to process your emotions, didn't you? I think what was important to me is to trust that no one else will read them. They've always had written on the front, please mm. do not read and destroy in case yeah. I get run over by a bus. Uh, so I've written honestly in them. Because if you're writing in a guarded fashion, because you think someone might read them, um, yes. but you have yes, to trust that no one... you're in. absolutely right. I don't know if you've read that book, The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. She's the lady that says when we wake up in the morning, we should do our morning pages, you know, just write yeah. whatever's in our heart and our heads and... And then we destroy it afterwards. And that's how we can unlock our creativity. I love that. I do that sometimes. You don't want other people reading that. No, and it's it's not useful if if you can't be honest with what you want Mm, to say. It's a waste of time. So, so definitely, you need to do the work. And even at six months, if I felt I was sort of drifting a bit and because of course, you know, fading effect bias is huge. Like, oh, I wasn't that bad. <laughs> you know, <laughs> perhaps I will just have a drink. No, go and um, listen to someone like William Porter, who, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> I had him on audio, you know, and you'd jump out the window rather than have a drink. <laughs> Exactly. And I think I think when we know there is such a thing of fading effect bias, when if we get those thoughts, you know, you and your bottle of rose, if um we can think, oh, it's just a bit of fading effect bias, and then we label yeah. it and dismiss it. Whereas otherwise Absolutely. it just sits there, doesn't it? So the yeah. more we learn about uh, this stuff, you know, the the less we want to drink it really. And I didn't go around telling everyone I was doing it. Um, I only fessed up to people, which is a ridiculous way of putting it. If I was going out for dinner with them or something, or, you know, I was doing something where we'd normally... Because I, my social life, everyone always drank. Unless we were going to a morning church service for some reason. And even then we'd have a glass of wine afterwards. But so I would say, oh, I'm not drinking. I'm really trying to improve my sleep. I never once said... You know, I think I drink too much, really. Now I do. Now I say I drank mm. my quarter quota. And what I found was as soon as I said it, people didn't say, oh, well, we're really pleased. We thought you were drinking too much. Not one person said that. No. But nearly everyone tells you about what they drink. Yeah. They immediately yeah. start drinking about themselves and talking about themselves, which is really interesting. Uh, do they Not tell to- you that you're, you're fine and you're being silly and you shouldn't, re- you shouldn't worry? 
they're amazed that I now, because for ages, and I think it's sensible to keep your own counsel for a while. Yeah. I didn't say I'd stopped forever. And now I will. I will say, yeah. no, I'm never yeah. going to drink again. And I will say, why now? That's probably only in the last three months. And it's quite fun saying that you'll never drink again because people go. <laughs> they do. And that's when I usually say I've jumped my quota, you know, yeah. no more wine for me. Um, <laughs> but um, no, to begin with, I was saying, oh, I'm just, you know, having a rest and trying to improve my sleep. And as if we have to apologise for it. Well, we is... do. It's the only drug we have to justify not taking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I hope things will change in the future. But Yeah, um, well, they are um, a little bit... I think, you know, the fact that we've got all these alcohol-free drinks and we've got a big mm. online recovery movement, once you dive in and discover it, at least it's there. Yeah. It didn't used to be there. I have a worry that with the the enormous cost of living crisis we're about to go into, people will start drinking more at home again, like they did in the pandemic, rather than yes. going out. And it'll be interesting to see what effect that has, because it's so expensive in the... UK, uh, a pint of beer is about six pounds. About, well, all the, about all the kind of highlighting in the media at the moment, you know, I have Sky here and I see the press and it's all about the cost of living crisis, energy bills, etc. But I still haven't seen an article which says something like, stop drinking and save this amount of money every single week. All the uh. national press have got huge adverts from all the so all, all the supermarkets on their cut price alcohol. Yeah. Anything you think that we haven't mentioned that we should before we say goodbye? No, only that just go for it. Take a yeah. big deep breath. It doesn't yeah. matter if you have lots of day ones. It's better than giving up. I mean, I had a, a, a few day ones and... It, even when I'd had my last day one, I didn't know it would. I would stop, and right. it's it sort of you have to go down that path quite yeah. a long way, and yeah. then you start seeing that alcohol isn't necessary. And I, it takes a long time to feel better, so don't think, oh, I'll go back to drinking because I don't feel any better anyway. And that's why having people a tribe is great, isn't it? Because people say, Fantastic. oh, I felt like that at two months. I nearly, you know, threw in the towel. But just keep going, keep going once you've... And I can't imagine what, what, the, what the WhatsApp group of that uh, Sober 66 group will be like. But they'll be helping each other. And it yes, you fall, off, you fall off the bus for a day. Get back on it again. Thanks so much, Janet. Some great advice and insights there. Let's pull out some key facts. Janet's father was a drinker and her mother was hooked on prescription drugs. By the time she was only four years old, Janet would notice how her father's personality would change. And by the time she was eight, she realised that alcohol was responsible for that change. She tells us the story of watering down her dad's beer and gin to prevent the mood swings. I find that really sad, and I can just picture that well-meaning little girl emptying out the alcohol and replacing it with water. I wonder if her dad realised what was going on. Apparently, alcohol was never spoken about in Janet's household. By the age of 15, Janet was going to the pub with her older brother, but she didn't drink very much when she got there. 
The combination of her exposure to alcohol as a teenager and her genetic link to a father who drank meant that she had two factors that would predispose her towards alcoholism. However, much to Janet's credit, it wasn't until much later in life that she began to struggle with alcohol. Up to 40 years old, she was absolutely fine, so she was definitely what we call a late-onset drinker. She had a high-flying career and had her children relatively late in life. It was only when Janet gave up her job to stay at home with her two young children that the alcohol consumption stepped up. She slipped into that well-known pattern of a couple of glasses of wine while preparing the kids for bed and then sharing more wine with her husband when he got home from work. A bottle of wine each evening and more at the weekends when they socialised became the norm. With hindsight, Janet can see that she was in complete denial about her drinking. She never thought anything of it. Her consumption increased when she discovered that very clever invention, the wine box. I think the wine box has been the downfall of many. No more recycling worries or watching the level in the bottle go down. So like 20% of social drinkers, Janet had become dependent over the years. As Ken Middleton explains in his article about the science of alcohol dependency, if you drink consistently for a long enough period of time, the chances of you having a problem are almost guaranteed. I'll put a link to Ken's great article in the show notes. Ken Middleton also explains in that article that for many of us, the heavy drinking switches to dependence somewhere between the 16th and the 23rd year of drinking. That would certainly apply to me. I started as a teenager and I was definitely hooked by my 40s, whereas Janet didn't start until she was 40 and she was hooked by her early 60s. As Janet said, she had drunk her quota when she gave up. Those of us that started early had definitely had their quotas by the age of 40, which seems like a great age to quit. A doctor once told me that we can get away with almost anything until we're 40, but once we hit 40, we have to start taking care of ourselves. And I think ditching the booze is absolutely the best thing we can do for our health and our happiness as we age. Janice explained that she did try to give up after having surgery, but found it really hard as she was white-knuckling it. And this experience taught her that she could probably give up drinking if she put her mind to it, but it would be really hard and pretty much a lifetime struggle. And that's the mindset we are so keen to overturn here at Tribe Sober. We don't believe in white-knuckling, which involves willpower. We help our members to change their mindset about alcohol so that their desire to drink will diminish. So rather than a lifetime struggle, we believe it's a matter of six months of hard work and then it's done. Admittedly, we then have to reconfigure our lives and learn to navigate our alcohol-drenched society, but certainly within a year we can change our lives. In 2021, Janet was captured by Moderation Mary. Mary convinced her that if she put a few rules in place, she would be able to moderate. Of course she would. Now this moderation phase is definitely a red flag of dependence, but it's also a sign of the start of the contemplation phase. Janet had moved out of the denial phase and she knew something had to change. 
She took a complete break before the moderation attempt, hoping to reset her drinking habits. But while this is a nice idea in theory, we have to accept that once we've crossed that line into dependence, the word moderation should be banished from our vocabulary. Those of us that have tried moderation know only too well that it takes us just a few weeks to get back to our previous drinking patterns. And there we go again, stopping and starting, doing the hardest bit over and over. Alongside the drinking, there was something else going on in Janet's life. She'd always suffered from sleep issues, and from 1994 to 2021, she took a diazepam every night to help her sleep. Now, rather rashly, she decided to come off the benzos at the same time as quitting alcohol, which resulted in two sleepless weeks. This is a classic example of chasing more than one bunny at a time, as we call it here at the tribe. We always recommend that our members just focus on giving up alcohol and then tackle the other issues. Tackle the diet, the exercise, the medication issues a bit further down the road. You can't try too many things at once or nothing will work. And this is what Janet eventually did. She clocked up a few months of sobriety and then she managed to work on quitting the benzos. Janet did Annie Grace's alcohol experiment and related well to Claire Pooley, who also gave up a high-flying job to stay home with young children. Janet found Tribe Sober via Claire Pooley, and we resonated with her as we are more in her age demographic than other groups, and we're certainly a lot smaller. Some sobriety groups have thousands of members, whereas we only have a few hundred, and we like it that way. It means we can provide a personal service to our members. Janet is a very visual person and she gave us three great examples of how this can help. She used to imagine 6,000 bottles of wine and 10,000 pills in a room. That was her lifetime quota and she'd finished it. Then she turned to Moderation Mary and the Wine Witch and she made sure that they were firmly locked in her cellar. And finally, when she found herself admiring a gorgeous bottle of pink rosé in the supermarket, she mentally decanted it into a plain brown box with a picture of a diseased liver on the top. Genius. At just over one year sober, Janet is not struggling at all. In fact, as you could hear, she's still really excited about being sober. Well done, Janet, and we love having you in our tribe. So let me end with a lovely message from one of our members who's just graduated from a four-year degree course. This is Nicole. Today I'm celebrating the outcome of the gifts of sobriety, a brain that works well, time, clarity, self-trust and consistency. This degree wouldn't have been possible just four years ago when boozing was more important to me than books. I am so, so thrilled. Sober Spring 2018 changed my life. Thank you, Janet and Tribe Sober. We are the lucky ones. So Nicole posted that message on one of our chat rooms and got plenty of congratulations pouring in. She responded to those messages like this. She said, Thank you, Tribe. I'm truly amazed how one brave choice four years ago set a new path in motion. 
And I'm so proud of that exhausted, desperate, hungover woman who said enough and registered for Sober Spring. Life-changing. Lots of love. Oh, well, thank you, Nicole. We're so proud of you. I remember you doing our Sober Spring and that lovely blog that you wrote, 66 Days of Feeling. I'm going to post that in the show notes. So that's it from me. Please remember that November is our birthday month and we're offering a 20% discount on annual membership. Just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. Enter birthday 2022 when you purchase and you'll get that 20% reduction. Wishing you an awesome alcohol-free week and I'll be back next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard, it takes courage and grit, and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.